right here we are here we are welcome. and this welcome back thank you episode 65 it is 65 uh, plus uh, or minus two. plus or minus two yeah and and this is ollie and and this is scott and I'm the, I'm the minus two you're the plus two sure 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 Sure. And this is science in between. Yes, it is. Yeah. And yeah. today we, we thought we'd talk about, you know, I, after last week, we talked about uh, the, you know, how to change schools. I think one of the things that um, a place to start in terms of, I don't want to say change, but certainly, you know, uh, an area where we could do some work is our, with teachers. Um, and I, 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 I kind of, you know, tread lightly there because I, I tend not to use like a deficit mindset when I talk about teachers or talk about like sure. professional development, because I think that's the, the way you get, you're kind of dead in the waters, right? When you approach people like, Hey, you're doing it wrong. Here's okay. the way to do it. You know? Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about professional development today and, yeah. and, and how to provide professional development, or at least some of the, the things that we like, I don't know, some of the driving principles that you know, guide you and I, and we're going to be doing, we've done work together, you and I around professional development for science teachers, and we're probably going to do more in the future. And, Mm -hmm. and so I think it's, it's probably a worthwhile discussion, right? Yeah. And it's, it's an area, I think, notoriously that is ignored when you're trying to do change in the sense of, I guess ignored is maybe too strong, but it's, it's very underemphasized. So if you're rolling out a new set of standards, you spend a lot of time and energy, like making sure those standards are beautiful and, and you get them disseminated well and all that. But oftentimes then it's like, well, the teachers will just do it or the school districts will just do it. And then, you know, and then the school districts say, okay, well, we really got to figure out these new standards, these new science standards. And so we're going to, we're going to prepare our teachers. We're going to, we're going to have some professional development for them. And they're like, okay, so we've got a half day coming up next week. Let's do a half day on, I don't know, figure something out, talk about stuff. Uh, We're going to do hands-on, minds-on science for half a day. Sounds great. Sign me up. Sign me up. We're going to find Bob's traveling roadshow of science professional development. They'll come in for half a day and do a little song and dance. And then our, our teachers are all be prepared after half a day of, of, you know, being told about stuff. I, I'm, I'm trying to infer a little bit. It doesn't sound very, sorry, sound very positive there, Scott. I think there might be a little sarcasm. You mean the experience or my description of the experience? (laughs) Your description of the experience. I think both are not positive. (laughs) Yeah, well, no, so I think it, I think they're I think you and I both know and I think no. all the teachers out there know like they you know what they do teachers usually do in the in the context of that kind of professional development is they sit with their laptops open either checking email or desperately wishing they could be back in their rooms prepping lessons or grading or doing right. something that's actually useful instead of listening to Bob's traveling roadshow talk about how they can do more hands-on minds on science I mean and you know, I, I don't want to disparage all professional development that way, but but if you can if you constrain it to half a day, you know, twice a semester for the whole like that's the whole thing, and then you say, well, and that's for the whole district. So how much of that can actually be science specific? Because you're also going to be doing well. We've got to do professional development around reading whatever. in the content area, like right. that's a big exactly, one, or yeah. who knows what. Right. right. Responsive teaching in a, in a general sense, like what does responsive right. teaching mean? Okay. Well, we're sure. going to do a day on that. Well, okay. Then, 
how are you preparing teachers to really do the hard work of, of um, engaging with the, the new standards like NGSS and figuring out what they mean for their practice and, and how to, how to, you know, best do that work. So, okay, let's, let's unpack some of the things I think are, are important. So one, I think if professional development is going to be something that is going to like really be impactful, that one it should be something that is more long-term than these little like one-offs. Like the one-offs to me have never really impacted change in any sorts of like long-term way. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, they come sure, in, there's, if, and there's research evidence for that. Oh, right? there's, a lot, there's a ton of research evidence on this. And, and I, when I was working, so I was our, you know, the director of our campus's professional development center, our teaching and learning center. And that's what all the research says around teaching and learning centers is that these little one-offs, people are happy to come and spend an hour, you know, learning about whatever, you know, uh, active learning or discussions or whatever, but the the impact of those is minimal. Mm -hmm. And so if, if we really want to, you know, make substantive, substantive change, I guess I got that. Yes, <laughs> maybe. Um, ballpark. Sure. <laughs> if we want to make change that is long-term and lasting, yeah. then it's got to have something that has a little more meat to it. And, and there's a little bit more, you know, long-term than just a, you know, like a one-off session of an hour or two. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's like, you know, we, we, we didn't, we're not specifically going to call out um, research around professional development, but, no. but broadly speaking, like these, there are some principles and, and you've named one that it should be ongoing, um, that it should be contextual. So it should be yeah. in, it should be in the teacher's classrooms. It should be science. It should be content specific. Right. Yes. So, so that that's important too. And, and um, so I think, I think when we think about professional development, I, you know, going back to first principles, Clarice, um, you know, the, the idea that all learning environments should be communities of practice, right? And so the question is, what is the practice that you're engaging in? Because it's, yeah. diff- it's different than engaging kids in science practices, but it's not different in the sense that you're a teacher educator and you're trying to create an environment where the people in that environment are engaged in some kind of authentic practices. So the question is then, what does that look like? And an authentic teaching practice is not sitting and listening to a lecture. Like that's not teachers don't do that for very much of their time outside of professional development. So thinking about, well, what is an authentic practice is, is sort of a jumping off point for how how to think about professional development. Well, it's, it's, it's hard. That's a hard thing to do. Right. I mean, like, I, well, let me just say all of this is hard. Right. I mean, that's why we have life is hard, Ollie. Right. But that's why we have the traveling medicine shows because they're they're easy. It's easy to hire somebody from outside who's going to come in and and do this thing, and it feels good, right? It's like, yeah. uh, but it's it's kind of like I and and this is I realize how how negative this is going to sound, but it's kind of like meringue, right? Like you, it tastes really good. It's like if you have like meringue, though. Uh, Go ahead. Go no, ahead. but like a, like if you've eaten a meringue cookie, right? Yeah. It's it's sweet. Yeah, yeah. When you hold it in your hand, you feel like this is substantial, but then you put it in your mouth, it kind of melts away and it's just like, oh, then it's gone. Right. And then I think that's how a lot of these traveling medicine shows are like, you know, these mm-hmm. ones that come in and do a one off, you know, for an hour or two that just like jazz you up and say, oh, yeah. And then they leave. Right. And then they never have done. They haven't done anything. Right. And yeah. so. So it's got to be something ongoing, something authentic in the practice of teaching. I think it's also got to be, you said contextual. Um, I think there's, there's an element of choice here that I think is critical. There's got to be some buy-in from the, from the teacher that they have, 
not been forced to be there, but have right. chosen to be there. And they see the, the reason for being there from their own practice, from their own teaching. And, yeah, I, and that's I a think, hard thing to do. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think the tricky bit is, I mean, there's so many obvious analogs to classroom teaching here, but it, the other thing is sometimes you, you both need and um, I don't know what the word you, you like, sometimes the teachers are not there by choice and that's important too. Like sometimes there's work that needs to be done and some of the teachers don't want to come do it. And, um, and that's hard too, but it, it but um, you know, I mean, going back to this idea of the, like the traveling roadshow, like, and you saying it was easy, it's, it's very similar to lecturing in a science class, right? right? Lecturing in a science class is easy for the teacher. And in many respects, it's easy for the students. That doesn't right. mean they can't fail at it, but there's not a lot of heavy lifting on the part of a student who just has to sit and take notes while you lecture. Like that's pretty low stakes, especially if you give them some sort of support for that note taking, right? Like a uh, worksheet or some sort of uh, graphic organizer. So, okay. Yeah. And, and the advantage to that is even though nobody's working particularly hard, everybody sort of feels like it's hard work and can say, yeah, that was really useful. And I think it's the same in professional development, right? Like if somebody rolls in and like does a lecture and like you say, gets you all jazzed up. I was trying to think if there's an, an analogous phrasing of death march, death march with fun sauce, but I don't think it, P, PD isn't a death march because it's never long enough to be that. So maybe meringue with with fun sauce or no, that's yeah. not right either. It just but anyway, dissolved the meringue, you know? Yeah. The, oh, that's right. The fun sauce. Always dissolves the meringue. <laughs> that is a problem. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's, uh, you know, the big question is like you, you always are going to have a much more limited time with teachers than teachers have with students. Like that's so, yeah. so you have to figure out like, how do you maximize the time you have access to do the work with teachers? Um, if you're a professional development provider and, and what is your focus? And, and like you said, it starts with this idea of respect for the teachers that you're not coming yeah. in to say like, you're doing all this stuff wrong. And I'm here to how to tell you how to do the right thing and choice. And I think one of the ways to get at that is through problems and practice, right? So, sure. so this That's idea of work, working yeah. with teachers around identifying like, what are the problems of practice that we're trying to solve here um, and not come in and tell them, okay, here's, here's what you need to fix. Yeah. I think, I think situated in that way is a great way to frame it. It's like, okay. Um, you know, we all have these problems with, you know, students not maybe understanding a concept or maybe not understanding how to, you know, explain an, uh, a situation or explain a, a phenomenon or use evidence in their explanation or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and situating that, I mean, now we've kind of come together around a common problem, right? And we're all like problem solving and we're all like thinking right. about like our own experiences as teachers and I think that can foster, you know, some of that discourse, because I think that that's the other piece about this is just like we would want to make our classrooms discourse based. We've got to make this, you know, mm -hmm. these professional development experiences discourse based, too, because we want to tap into, you know, the knowledge and backgrounds of our teachers, just like we'd want to tap into the knowledge and backgrounds of our students. Yeah. And so. Um, not necessarily to say, just like we wouldn't want to do it for for students and say, oh, well, that's completely wrong, you know, right. you know. But but we do want to tap into that and and use some of that, you know, that terminology, that some of that lexicon to draw upon as we start to, you know, I don't know, inject new practices or in inject, you know, some reform based practices. I don't know. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think one of the, I was thinking about this just this morning, actually, um, because of my, my methods class, I was thinking about the next lesson and, um, and I was thinking, you know, one of the fundamental pieces, um, that often gets missed in this idea of what authentic practices are is that all authentic practices, however you characterize them, whether they're kids learning science or teachers learning to teach or whatever, like the foundation, the core, the glue, every the, the thing that is most central to this idea of an authentic practice is talk. Like yeah. everything else in science, I think actually it's a distractor that we have all these material practices, this like doing lab stuff, because, and this goes to this like hands-on, minds-on conversation that you hear, which I think is inane, but, but this idea of like, Let's focus on the on the fact that students get to use materials as part of the practice, and that becomes the focus rather than saying the materials are are secondary. the The purpose of the materials is to drive talk, and that really all authentic practices are grounded in authentic kinds of talk. And that's what you're trying to do is trying to get students to talk about science in ways like scientists do, like use the evidence, use, um, do sense-making. And the same thing is true when you're thinking about professional development. What you're trying to do is create authentic talk, um, not not some other kind of, like it doesn't, it doesn't require that they teach a lesson in the professional development for it to be authentic practice. That can work, and it's sometimes super useful to do that, but that isn't the only kind of authentic practice. The question is, can you engage teachers in authentic professional conversations about the work that they do to try and help them develop their own understandings of what they're doing and why they're doing it, and and if they want to do it the way they're doing it, or if they want to think about different ways of doing it? So I think this uh, this kind of leads into the the next, I think for me, the, the next question is, how do we as facilitators position ourselves in a way to, to make that discourse happen? Because, you know, we, we've kind of both made the switch, right? You and I were both classroom teachers and now we're part of the ivory tower, right? Yeah. And that ivory tower, you know, when we were teaching, you know, the yes. ivory tower, those are always the people that we like mocked after they left, right? Yep. We, we're just like, oh, like this guy knows what's going on. Right. Um, but I feel like, you can position yourself in a way where that doesn't happen. Right. And, and I think that, so, and, and I think that the, the, the problems of practice, I think is the, the way to do it and the discourse and fostering the conversations. And let me, I'll kind of go like, I'm going to go off on a tangent, but that happens. Oh, um, okay. So I, thanks for the I, warning though. I appreciate uh, it. I, I, heads up highlight, bing, 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 <laughs> turn the light on the, the rabbit hole headlight right here um <laughs> the bugs bunny animation pops yeah, up like yeah. time for so i i was at a conference this week i was at a uh the pennsylvania women's uh conference this week uh and a friend of a friend of the show was awarded uh a uh an award by the pa conference of women and so i was Very attending nice. yeah and so i got to see the keynote one of the keynotes was Brene brown Okay. okay. And I, I'm a huge brain Brene Brown fan. I've, I've read a bunch of her books. And, and so this was a real treat for me to be able to like see her virtually, you know, I didn't actually attend. It was a virtual conference, mm-hmm. but there's like six or 7,000 people there, which is pretty cool. And one of the things I've, I've often appreciated about Brene Brown is that she positions herself as a fellow traveler, right. As somebody who is trying to figure it out too. Mm-hmm. Right. And she has tons of expertise and has 
she knows so much about emotions and how we work through emotions and all the landmines of emotions, so specifically around shame and guilt and all that. And I think that's the way that we as facilitators of professional development have to be. We have to position ourselves as having some expertise, but also working to figure things out too. Mm-hmm. And that we are as curious as, as them, because I think that's the, the model we want to present, right? Is a model of curiosity and not a model of, of expertise. And I would say that was one of the things about Brene Brown's you know, keynote that I don't want to say turned me off that kind of struck me as odd. She talked a little bit about like having superpowers or having some, you know, magical superpowers or being keen to emotion. And that's where I kind of like was like, oh, I kind of bristled a little bit because that presents her as being, you know, someone different than us. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's the thing that where we step into troubles with, you know, professional development is that when we start to say, okay, we possess specialized knowledge, which we do, right? We possess specialized knowledge that you don't have. Let me deliver it to you. Mm-hmm. That's where you, you know, that we get in trouble. I think right. that, and that's where we turn off, you know, the, the, the participants, the teachers that we're working with. But if we go, okay, hey, here's these problems of practice. Let's discuss this in a curious way and model that curiosity and, and model good questioning that fosters a discourse around curiosity and about problem solving around like a collective meaning making rather than I have, I have something special that only I can give, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the way that is probably going to work with a lot of folks. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think it has to be seen as a as a co-inquiry with people who right. have different levels of expertise about different things, right? <clears throat> and it is amazing how quickly um you you um you are positioned differently once you leave the classroom, right? So Absolutely. so the, it's not it's not like oh, last year I was a teacher, so I'm sort of still in the club. It's like the day you stop being a teacher, you're done they, being a teacher. They and they're like, car. oh, you're one of those people. You don't know what it's like to be in the classroom. And I get that because I've had that feeling. I'm not <clears throat> not judging that. But I am saying it's hard when you're, you know, when you feel like you know something about classrooms because you teach in them and have taught in them. Um, but yeah, I think I think you're right. This this idea of, you know, the, the idea of curiosity, not judgment, right? Yeah. So the the purpose of our inquiry is to be curious about practice. Every teacher knows that they can get better at their job, right? There's nobody, there's no teacher out there who thinks like, I got this. I, I have no room for improvement. I am 100% killing it. All my students um, love the subject that I teach. They understand it perfectly. They're, they're well positioned to be good citizens or scientists or whatever I want them to be because they're awesome, right? I mean, and I wish that were true, but that's not the way it is. Like the, and, and the beauty is we all have opportunities for growth. And so, so what we're trying to do in professional developments is, is work with folks and say, like, where and how do you want to grow and how can we help you do that? Right. Um, and recognizing that, you know, there are constraints, right? Like in the, in the case of what we're talking about, let's say we're talking about professional development around NGSS. Like if your state has adopted NGSS or NGSS like standards, 
that's a that's a constraint. That's a real constraint. You can't say I'm just going to ignore those because that's not the way it works. If you're if you're a public school teacher, so so you can say, well, what are your problems of practice? Let's talk about that. But it's always framed within the context of whatever the local policy is, or whatever your principal is asking you to do, or whatever the state mandates are. So you have flexibility and things to talk about, but then you also have constraints. And so your job as a professional development professional. A uh, professional learning professional is to is to work with that group, be responsive to them in the same way that you would like to see them be responsive to to, to their students, and and say here's here's what we're here for. We're here to try and identify and work through some serious problems that um, that that we identify as being worthy of being worked on. Right? Yeah. And so there's uh, a. I, there's there's a lot of parallels between what happens in a classroom, you know, as a teacher working in a classroom and uh, a professional development facilitator working with a group of teachers. But I think there's a lot of like differences, too. So, I mean, we're talking about, you know, the similarities a lot in that, you know, we want to foster ownership. We want to make it a discourse, you know, space. Um, but I think that um, the practice is the thing, right? Because there is a practice we can draw upon that I think is, is unifying and that we have to be mindful of the fact that we're working with adults who have lots of expertise and that if, and I kind of get, this is like, I guess, cycling back to where we started is if we don't honor, honor that expertise in a way that uh, doesn't communicate deficit and doesn't mm-hmm. communicate bias that, um, or that does communicate bias, I guess is a better right. way to say that, yeah. that, that we're, we're going to be dead in the waters. Sure. Yeah. You know? And, and, and the irony is that um, we do that all the time in K-12 schooling. Yeah. <clears throat> but yeah. And, and in fact, most of those things are dead in the water, but that's another thing to talk about. Not today. Um, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think thinking about, um, you know, professional development contexts or professional learning contexts are different than classrooms because you have a group of, of professionals, right? And, and they are committed to their, this, to their, presumably to their own growth and that this is their field that they have chosen to be in. And they're trying to, you know, hopefully trying to engage with you to get better at what they do. So that is a different context than, than a group of students. That doesn't mean there won't potentially be teachers in your professional learning context who are recalcitrant and less interested in participating. And that's, you know, part of the, part of the job too. But, um, but I do think this idea of thinking about like what the practices are and identifying problems of practice working on, you know, there's lots of ways to think about this, but um, in terms of like co-design, if you're doing curriculum work, there's, there's ways of thinking about and structuring this material. But one, one of the things that came to mind as we're talking about this is Jessica Thompson, who's at the university of Washington, wrote a paper about um, problems without ceilings. And the paper is really about one of the things that we couldn't do, well, I don't know if she said this exactly, but I take I take away from that article that one of the things we can do as professional learning facilitators is we can help shape those um, problems that are identified as the problems of practice that we as a community are, are going to engage in to be ones that are as she describes, problems without ceilings, which is to say problems that don't have solutions, but you constantly work on them and iterate on them and try and improve. They're areas that can be improved upon, but never settled as done, 
right? So I think, and that that is a that is a generative space to be in, but it's also a difficult space to to be in in terms of finding the right things because you want them. You know, again, this the parallels feel like. Um, are obvious here to science. Like It's like choosing a good phenomenon, right? You want a phenomenon that's not so simple that you can just say, okay, that's it, but not so complex that you can't understand the underlying science. You want something that's going to be generative, that that allows for deep and thoughtful inquiry, but also allows for progress and iteration on, on iterative improvement. So I think in a professional learning context, you're thinking about the same thing. Like what are the problems of practice that we can identify that we, that aren't simply solved? Um, like, you know, how do I, what do I do about kids who are absent? How do I figure out what to do right. about that? Like that, you can argue that's a problem of practice, but it's not a very generative one. Right. So, so that's sort of like the simple phenomenon. And then there are some that are, you know, not solvable, right? Like there's system level problems in teaching that you can, that you can't take on as a, as a group of, of teachers in professional learning, but there are a whole lot of things that you can identify that are generative and productive for teachers to work on and say, yeah, these are cool problems. Let's think about these and start generating some potential solutions and then testing those solutions out in our classrooms and coming back and saying, what do we learn from that? Like, what do we know now that we didn't know and how do we improve that? Yeah. So it's got to be something that is complicated enough and complex enough um, that, you know, you know, like you said, it, it, fosters those generative conversations. And, and then also within the locus of control of the teachers, right? it's something right. that they, they have, they have the ability to enact change and enact, yeah. you know, improvement. I, I wonder a little bit as we're talking about this, like, and I hate to d- jump into this, but I'm going to anyway, um, I do <laughs> is the, you know, the pedagogy versus andragogy stuff, you know, and I know, yeah, I know. Do you, I'm just, yeah, do you hate to jump into this? Cause you, you have a big grin on your face. Like, well, it, it is, okay. it is something that, you know, maybe five years ago was something that if I went to a conference, there'd always be somebody talking about this. And mm-hmm. I don't know, if it's still right next door I, to the TPAC people. And the, right. Uh, and right next to the people who are like, you know, 60 apps in 60 minutes, you know, yeah. and there's mul- multiple intelligences. People are right next to them and the mindset people maybe are, are a couple doors down from them. So, yeah. So, but I, but I feel like there is a little crossover that probably deserves a little, like, let's, let's, let's dunk the, you know, our little carry on Ali. Tell us I'm, about it. Well, okay. So, the, there's there's a there's been a, a a movement a conversation around when we're talking about professional development since we're working with adults that it's different than working with kids which we t- we've just talked a little bit about but that there's these broader principles pedagogical principles which is working with kids versus andragogical principles and i think i'm pronouncing that right is who knows who it's knows close enough for government work Carry yeah on. Andragogical principles, which is working with adults, and mm-hmm. like some of these were mapped. Some of these principles were mapped by this guy, uh, Malcolm Knowles and Alexander Cap. I'm just you know reading some stuff I have. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah, I could maybe, maybe maybe maybe. But I think that that some of those principles kind of align with the things we're talking about. They say you know uh, that Knowles outlined six assumptions around um, motivation for adult learners is one, they need to know, they, they need to know why they're doing this, right? They have mm-hmm. to have some reason for it, um, that they have to 
uh, that the foundation for it should be experience-based. So their own experiences should be the thing we draw upon. Um, that there's going to be some, you know, choice-based. There's going to be some self-concept. That's what he, that they, he talked about it. That it's uh, a readiness. That they've got to be able to uh, uh, be relevant to the work or something applicable to their work. Um, it should be problem-centered. Uh, there's orientation should be problem-centered. And... Uh, and the last one is motivation that adults respond better to internal versus external motivators. And so like, that's the, that's the critical thing with, so, I mean, I, I think, okay, but both, you listen to that list, right? What's that? When, when you listen to that list, I'm hard pressed to differentiate that from how you would work with students. Right. 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 It, I agree. I, I, I don't think they're substantively different than, you know, if you were to like, if you're working with kids and you're not thinking about that stuff, then you're going to miss the mark, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that treating kids like the, like a tabla rasa or teaching them like, Hey, just as like, it's all information delivery. Again, that's just not how we per- perceive classrooms. That's not how we perceive learning. Mm-hmm. And so there's, you know, probably what, where we situate ourselves in terms of learning theory probably puts us in, you know, someplace outside of or across pedagogy and andragogy or maybe some other gaji gaji (laughs) well yeah i mean what i would say is like when what we typically do with students is um design learning environments that strip away their agency and and what what you hear in that list is well, adults don't like that, so don't do that. Give them agency, and it, and, kids and the don't truth like is, it. Yeah, kids, don't. <laughs> kids don't like it either. No. Um, we just think it's okay because we think kids are get to be treated differently because they're kids. And I'm not trying to say like kids and adults don't learn differently. Maybe I'm I, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that there's a there's substantive differences, um, but certainly um, how we structure schools and how we structure learning environments for adults is different. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean that they learn different. It means that we have developed a, a cultural practice of treating them as if they're different. But um, but again, I listen to that list and say. Like most of that stuff, you know, I understand it's different in the sense that adults have usually chosen um, some path and they're on a path of this is the kind of person or this is the kind of career I want to pursue. And and children have not done that yet. So I, I recognize that there are differences, but I do think like um, part of the problem is that we think that those things only apply to adults and they don't. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Might just I throw yeah. that in there as yeah, yeah, just throw it in there. Just, right. Yeah. Well, no, I think that like we may have a listener out there who who says, Well, it sounds like Andragogy. And and I always like to go at things head on rather than yeah. you know let them fall through the cracks. And so yeah. actually it, it makes me think that maybe something we should do at some point would be make a list of some of these sort of constructs that, that get tossed around, T pack, you know, and drive. We've talked about we've Android. talked about a couple. Yeah. But I mean, we've, yeah, we've talked about multiple intelligences. We've talked about mindset. We've talked, you know, there, there's a whole variety of, of things that sort of transitioned in that barrier between they were scholarship and then they became sort of, um, in some cases, like little cottage industries, industries. yeah, right. little industries in education and, and sort of unpack them a little bit and talk about like, well, what, what, what's, what do they really mean and how have they been translated and, um, yeah, I think that, you know, I know we've talked about it, but I think, uh, you know, it comes up again. 
Well, I think it comes back to, you know, one of the themes of the show is the use and misuse, right? Yeah. Is, is whenever something, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, the folks who developed this concept of andragogy weren't anticipating how it could be misused. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying it is misused, but I mean, I would say that like folks who are working in badging, right? Digital badging, that's the thing that they hang their hat on, right? Yep. Is they, they're like, okay, we've, with uh, digital badging leads to andragogy or andragogy leads to digital badging. I don't know which is the cause yep. and effect, but that's what they hang their hat on is yep. like, okay. And they outline these and, and I kind of have some reservations about that, right? Is that? It's <laughs> <laughs> a mild description of what I have. So carry on. Yeah, but I do. And, and, but because uh, just like you said, these are things that all learners, you know, need. They, they, uh, we need to have that sort of position when we work with any learner, you know, and maybe, you know, it's different um, because they're adults. Um, because they do have a little bit more agency, or maybe they're more outspoken about their agency. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, I mean, I think adults have more power than children. I don't think that's an unfair thing to say. I think you're, I think you're on pretty safe ground saying that. Well, but I think that the, the way they present that is different, right? Is that when we have adults, they'll, they'll say, you know, this was, this was crap where we give them, you know, a professional development survey at the end to say, how is this a rate us down? When you're working with like a 11 year old who's in a classroom, their agency is okay. I'm just not going to do the work or I'm going to, I'm going to misbehave or I'm going to like, there's, I, I have a colleague who says, you know, you know, if a student is acting out, it's not the student's problem. It's the teacher's problem. Like mm-hmm. the teacher, like we've got to figure out, like it's not the pro- teacher's problem to solve. It's probably a lesson planning design issue. Like it's, I mean, no, granted, that's, that's a broad brush, but you know, that's the agency. That, that's the agency from the student's perspective is right. like, you know, I'm not going to do this or I'm going to do something else instead. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And adults do that too. Right. I mean, right. I've, I've certainly had professional development contexts where, you know, one of the teachers or, you know, is like actively not participating, right? Like right. They, back in the back grading papers yep. like, yeah, and, just... and have them out on the table and they make no bones about it. It's like, you, yeah. you want to tell me to leave? I'd be happy to leave. Thank you yeah. very much. Um, so I'm here because you told me to be here. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I think they, they exhibit some of the same sorts of, uh, you know, choices about how to exert their agency. But yeah, I mean, I think we, we probably need to, 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 bring a close to this for today. But, um, but I think the point that we're trying to make, or at least, and like so many things we do on this show, we're probably going to have to revisit this more than once, but um, is that, you know, we think about professional learning, not just because we do um, professional development, because we're teacher educators. So even, even in our day-to-day jobs, when we're working with our regular students, we're doing teacher education. So the difference between what we do with our pre-service teachers and what we do with in-service teachers isn't that radically different. It's just the, the time structures and the constraints and the context is different, but a lot of the fundamental principles are the same um, about authentic practices and developing, you know, sense-making communities around whatever that thing is in this case, science teaching. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think professional development is, is, uh, is, 
you know, often not given the um, attention that it deserves and requires to make it excellent. I think it often is, um, is, is superficial, but again, that isn't radically different than, than some of the stuff that goes on in K-12 schools. So, um, you know, we, and, you know, if I get back on my hobby horse, you know, one of the things we have to think about is what are the underlying learning theories under in both of these contexts? And the truth sure. is it's the same. Yeah. So, um, you know, as long as we have that sort of notion of learning, this abstracted knowledge that can be transmitted from point A to point B, um, well, we're going to, we're going to tend to build learning environments that reflect that. It all comes back to learning theory. Yeah. I mean, I got a hammer, all the world's world's a nail, right? You got to run around hammer and nails. So, um, and this isn't me blowing smoke, but I will say that the, the first class I took in my doctoral program with you around, you know, learning theories probably was the most impactful thing that uh, in my, not only my doctoral program, but also in my teaching, it like Mm. fundamentally shifted how I saw the world, you know, and that's a credit to you. Um, and a credit to the class and also how you ran the class. So, and I'm not blowing smoke because like at this Thank point, you. you know, 15 years after yeah. knowing, yeah, I don't need to do that anymore, but I do need to say that I want to honor that. I want to honor that. And thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you. So that, that could, you know, be a good transition into Joyce, you know? Yeah. It could be. Do you have a joy for I us? I do have a joy. I, uh, I kind of cycle. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> so I uh, kind of cycle back and forth through, you know, movies or you know mm-hmm. comic books or this week is music and movies i watched oh, a both i watched the documentary this week uh about nina simone it's mm-hmm. uh what happened miss simone uh it's on netflix it's from like 2015 i just kind of stumbled on it uh my wife and i were looking for something to watch the other night and uh i was like hey here's a nina simone documentary and it was awesome it's about like a little under two hours but it goes through her life and her background. And it's, it's really interesting because she was trained to be a classical pianist. And then um, she had met with some, some racism in the school she was trying to get into. And so I know that's shocking. Yeah. So what she did was she, you know, she was born with a different name and she set up this Nina Simone personality to be able to work in clubs to make money without her parents knowing because her parents were going to be disappointed if they knew that she was working in the clubs and singing. And so she had, she did this all, this whole thing on the side. And it's a pretty tragic story um, because, you know, as she went further in her life and she became really involved in the civil rights movement, it became, um, it really affected her career. They, they uh, some of the record labels blackballed her and wouldn't, you know, support her tours and things. And it's a pretty tragic story. So uh, what happened, Miss Simone? Check it out. Yeah. Okay. That sounds interesting. Um, Yeah. And uh, I cycle through things too. So uh, I'm going to return to podcasts and this is uh, not a podcast actually that I regularly listen to. It's one that I sort of dip into when the topics are interesting and it's a through line, which is an NPR podcast. And they do usually some sort of historical thing in the through they're looking at 
the the term through line means you know how it, how it connects through all these things so they're sort of drawing a connection usually historically um and they did a, an episode about dune um which i quite in, quite enjoyed and i recommend if you're a dune nerd i'm not i don't know if i'm quite a dune nerd but i certainly liked the books and reread the book recently prior to the movie coming out and saw you know and so so i'm I'm, I've been a little sort of immersed in this, in the Dune world. And so Throughline was a nice, uh, that episode was a nice one to just sort of, um, you know, put things in perspective, tell you a little bit about, um, you know, Frank Herbert and the plans of this and what the purpose, I don't know, purpose might be too strong, but sort of the themes and messages of the book. So I think it's, it's uh, you know, if you're a little bit of a Dune nerd, it, it's a good listen. It's not too long. I think it's 45 minutes. So it's not, it doesn't go deep into anything. It's really, um, but it's, but it's a nice little, uh, you know, a nice little thing to listen to. So and again, through line, I like it. It's not, uh, I'm, I'm not a absolutely regular listener. It's more topic based with them, but I do, but I do like the podcast. Yeah, I like those, sh- those shows. I mean, there's a whole, you know, series of things like that. Like the toys that made us that's on Netflix, the movies mm-hmm. that made us, you know, these, these deep dives into like a thing or a mm-hmm. you know, series of things just to kind of like talk about like the impacts of it. And we yeah. talked off, off show outside of the show about our, you know, perceptions of the Dune movie, the new Dune movie. And yes, we don't need to address that here, but no. you know, you know, check it out. Cause it's a beautiful movie. Um, I'll say that. So yeah, yeah. you can yeah. say that. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm anticipating the second one will be better. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it, it's, it's got more of the stuff that you went into the movie to see. Yes. So the first part is a lot of of uh, stage setting, and, yes. and stage setting is important, but it's not very exciting. No, it's it's not exciting at three hours. That's a lot of stage setting. It is a yeah. little bit, a little bit, a yeah, l- little bit. But little we're bit. not talking about that today. We are not talking about though that, we did so. though we just did. Maybe, maybe we maybe. did that. Maybe. We hey, did. well. That's it. Episode That's 65 it. in the books. Look at us. Science in between. Science in between. All right. We'll catch you next time. In between. See you then.